Hello and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to deal with the good, the bad, and the bewildering of movies either starving about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and writer for the Geek Show and Horrified.com, the British horror website. I've been joined this week by by uh, Rob Simpson. Hello there. Hello, Good Rob. Where can people find you? Yes, I am the host. I mean, I also do other stuff, but that's on sabbatical at the moment. But at at time, at the time, I am the host of a Divers and Cut podcast. Indeed. Um, a podcast with all the directors and all of the random. I guess is the quickest elevator pitch. It's like one floor. Um, pitching. <laughs> well, we're 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 coming at you quite close to the. Uh to the deadline when this episode is released for once so we can probably drop a bit of a hint as to what the next director's uncut episode um, is right well the first one of season two is michael Moore, mm. which i've put in the description of that may contain politics because it uh, just might yeah yeah <laughs> i don't think you can talk about his filmography by being apolitical <laughs> no no <laughs> No, that's very true. But that's out uh, next week, isn't it? Uh, next Friday, yes. Yeah, yeah, first Friday in August. So that's something to look forward to. But for now, Wavelength. Now, this is a film with a story behind it, and I'm sure we'll get onto that story. But let me just say there are very few episodes of Pop Screen where I get to use the fact that I have a near lifelong subscription to 14 Times magazine. Yeah. But this is one of them. It it does have that sort of woozy sci-fi feel to it. Yes, definitely. This is a 1983 film uh, written and directed by Mike Gray that as far as I can tell, uh, it's only home release has been on VHS. Yeah, and in the comments of the YouTube, I mean, it's one of these things, you have to be kind of upfront about this, but YouTube is surprisingly good for some things. Mm -hmm. Some things were lost on VHS, some things, I mean, amazingly, there's loads of Chinese movies that are just on there for no reason. Yeah. The Japanese movies from the 90s and the 90s, it's just things which don't get released somehow end up on YouTube. I don't understand how, but they're there. Hmm, somehow, somehow it happens. Well, I say somehow. I mean, somebody obviously <laughs> uploaded it, but usually it's like cease and desist within 10 minutes of it going up, is what I mean. Yeah, it's very odd that, isn't it? You can't really predict what's going to trigger YouTube's copyright algorithm. Yeah, I mean, I use like, little bits of trailers in mine and YouTube starts throwing all sorts of warnings at me, so I don't get how they can do a movie. No yeah. problems. Clearly, you should respect copyrights by putting up a whole actual film rather than just the trailer, I guess. Or, to play into the Fortean theme, um, when you put the image from right to left instead of left to right, so you sort of flop it. Oh, yeah. You should do that with the audio, too, so it plays backwards and in reverse, all the trailers. (laughs) But as everyone knows, (laughs) as soon as you reverse audio, whatever you were saying... The, the right way round, as soon as you reverse it, it just becomes a message telling people to kill their parents and worship Satan. That's the one lesson we learned from the 70s and 80s. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, it's it's very appropriate that we're talking about paranoia uh, because this is a very paranoid film. It opens with this absolutely golden tracking shot into a sort of an, an iron lung, I guess it would be. It's the closest parallel. I mean, it's mm. one of these things on YouTube, you get like 360p prints. And at first, yes. you're like, is that a speaker? Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, it, an iron lung is probably the best example of what it is. And it, it, it has a, a mysterious, bald humanoid inside it. And immediately I'm on edge because of when we're recording this, the first thing I think is Sajid Javid. But uh, it, it may be <laughs> oh, even oh, more oh, no. bewildering <laughs> than that. I don't think it is, you know, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite right. These things can heal people. Um, but th- this gives you a taste of the first pop music connection that the film has, which is this amazing Tangerine Dream score. Yes. Um, I never even knew this thing existed, so I find a new Tangerine score. Tangerine, Dreams, uh, Tangerine Dream score, there's a, a tongue twister, I imagine. I don't know how that happened, but uh, yeah, it's... I was told by my dad when I was very young that horror movies aren't scary. It's all about the atmosphere made by music. And I don't think there's anybody who really sort of imposed their will on a movie as much as Tangerine Dream did. What would be the movies that you most associate them with? Because they, they've done so many that I think everyone will have a different answer to oh, this. Well, it, it's, it's difficult to say because you say there's a, there's a line, isn't there? Because there's Tangerine Dream, and then they're separated, and then I think it was the lead lead from them also did Scars on the Run, which also were very, very similar to Tangerine Dream. Okay. So I could say something, and I completely put my foot in my mouth and say, oh, no, that's not... And then somebody in the comments says, that's not Tangerine Dream. What are you talking about? You're completely wrong. (laughs) Yeah, let, let's say let's say your favourite score featuring someone from Tangerine Dream, perhaps. Um, it's got to be the Italian work they did, really, um, with okay. Argento especially. Because I think uh, they did they do Inferno. I feel like they did Inferno. No, that was uh, I think that was Rick Wakeman who did Inferno. It was a very Tangerine Dream esque score. I might be wrong. I'm going to check that. People think that uh, John Carpenter did the Scars to all of his own movies, but he didn't do it for uh, The Thing. Ennio Morricone did that, and he did uh, mm. possibly the best John Carpenter score ever. Because, come on. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. It's yeah. It's Ennio. Yeah, it's Keith Emerson. Like so it's, oh, it's oh, Keith yes, Emerson who did yeah. the Inferno score, which is, is wild because... Hmm. Uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer are not a good band, but that is a good no. score. No, maybe if you separate them, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I suppose that it, it sort of makes sense in that Inferno is a very scary film and nothing gets my figure glands going than thinking I'm about to listen to Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Well, I don't know. It could be the news is playing that one song that got number two in the Eurovision again, and it's just <laughs> like a cat getting trapped in some part of the furniture. And it's like, do you have to play it all the time, news? I just, no. <laughs> Stop it. You're torturing me. 
<laughs> that song has made us almost kind of the technical winners of Eurovision, and that's the best we're going to get. I hate it so much, Graham. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> For me, I, when I think of Tangerine Dream, there's two themes that come to mind. There's Sorcerer, which is a fantastic oh, yes. score. So good. Uh, and the other one is Michael Mann's The Keep, which is, I mean, um, that's also a very hard film to find these days. I think that's by design. No, I think Michael Mann has effectively disowned it because he hates it. I think that there's a certain degree of sense to that. Like, it was supposed to be literally twice as long as it actually is. That's not me exaggerating. It was a three-hour initial cut, and it's 90 mm. minutes, and it makes no sense at all. Well, they never did as much as a father did. Um, I remember the score that he did for Faith. That's a good score, and that's a great oh, movie yeah. as well. Yeah. It kind of makes that movie, Faith. Because it, it's not a score... There's a thing with scores, I mean, this is a probably a controversial opinion, but in The Third Man, it plays that theme. Like, it's the intro to a, like a daytime TV quiz show. It's just overkill, absolutely. <laughs> and in Faith, they know when to use it and when not to use it, and I think, yeah. Yeah. It's a great score. I know I nobody think... agree with me on that, that Third Man take, but that hot, hot, hottest of takes. Oh yeah, I think we've disagreed about that in the past, haven't we? Oh yeah, we're really getting at the, the, the cutting edge of opinion of 1940s and film noir here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think they did a few Michael Mann ones. They did the Scarter Manhunter uh, for a while, and I remember there used to be this received opinion when I was young that one of Manhunter's problems was that it has this really dated score. And I just thought, no, no, wrong. Absolutely wrong. Completely wrong. Couldn't be wrong. Yeah. I mean, I mean, mind immediately went Blade Runner, but that's Vangelis, isn't it? That's Vangelis, the recently deceased Vangelis. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, stylistically, there's about half a dozen people who had very, very similar scores. I think what we're getting towards here is that a lot of people in the early 80s bought their first Fairlight synthesizer around the same time. Let's throw John Carpenter in there too. He probably did that as well. Yeah. He got a keyboard yeah. and a synthesizer and, you know, he went nuts. <laughs> he did, yeah. But now that's everywhere. I mean, no one would call that dated now because modern films all sound like this. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the Wikipedia, apparently Tangerine Dream did a bit of score for Stranger Things, so. That is, yeah, that fix, that's on brand. Yeah, so, <laughs> take from that what you will. But this is a gorgeous score. It's made up largely, it must be said, of, uh... well, I'm not sure whether it's excerpts from other albums, actually. I'm not sure whether some of these albums were released... Uh, there's an album or or after. It, yeah. whether it's a compilation or not I'm not sure but there is an album for a wavelength right. released which is quite weird isn't it because there isn't a DVD or a Blu-ray for wavelength well uh, I don't think it has enough to stand up on its own two legs in that regard it's a little bit of an outlier 
But it's an interesting outlier because it's one of these things where you say, it, they thematically say, oh, it copied off ET. No, this got in yeah. first. It was just delayed on the effect. So ET copied off Wavelength. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I, I just think that's the the piece of trivia they always use, isn't it? Is that ET was released at the same time as John Carpenter's The Thing. And that's always yeah. used as an explanation for why The Thing flopped. It's like, no one wants nasty, scary, flesh-whipping aliens at the moment. They want <laughs> aliens that are also really creepy, but aren't meant to be, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't like E.T. Me neither. As a, as a kid, you love it, but when you watch it as an adult, it just makes you vomit all over the place. It's just so saccharine. I found it, I just found the creature really creepy as a kid. I thought it was horrific, and... Um, yeah, it, it's the main reason why it took me a long time to really start to appreciate Spielberg. I'm a bit of a late yeah. Spielberg defender now, but it took me some time. Yeah, yeah. Fun Spielberg is best Spielberg. Yeah, I'd go for that, yeah. Uh, but in terms of wavelength, you're right, it's, it came out after E.T., uh, but only because the effects work was delayed for so long. And I don't know, it, it feels interestingly off zeitgeist for the early 80s, doesn't it? The early 80s, oh, I've always remembered as a very optimistic time, at least in America. And this isn't um, yeah. quite that. This has sort of the feel of... Seven, no, no, it's not 70s horror by any means or any stretch of the imagination, but when you compare 80s horror to 70s horror, 80s is all day glow and over the top and excessive mm, yeah where 70s is more tonal and interesting in concept and ideas led and this is that it's it's kind of woozy off kilter sci-fi yeah i definitely agree i don't think i can really think of a comparison point but yeah that's, i would characterize it tonally it kept reminding me that before he directed this, Mike Gray co-wrote the screenplay for The China Syndrome. And this feels like he's taken a lot of the lessons of that kind of based-on-fact thriller about corrupt institutions and official cover-ups and applied it to a science fiction setting. It's a bit of a leap, isn't it? It's a bit, yeah. (laughs) So uh, maybe like Phase 4. Is that, yeah, oh, that's a good book. call, yeah. That sort of vibe to it. But yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it's quite odd to think back to the China Syndrome and realise that Grey has gone from his leading lady being Jane Fonda to it being Chevy Curry, which is... That's a weird leap. It's a very weird leap. Um, from uh, one of the great acting dynasties, the Fondas, to Indeed. one of those girls from The Runaways. Yes, yeah. You're familiar with the Runaways, then? Yeah, I mean, they're a weird band, aren't they? Yeah. Um, they're not uh, quite explain. punk, not quite glam. Yeah, very punk in ethos. A um, mm, little definitely. bit of punk in sound as well. But it's they're a band that aren't so much known for the music, they're known for the story. And I think that yeah, I is agree. doing... Yeah them a huge disservice because they were like teenage girls who were playing their own instruments and writing their own songs and they were very good at it 
Oh yeah, and I mean, th- there's famously two runaway songs, uh, "Bad Reputation" and "Cherry Bomb," that basically everyone knows, and those songs still sound absolutely fantastic today. Oh yes, entirely. But the story of the band is much darker. It's like, I'd, I'd maybe we won't go into it too much because there is a biopic of them uh, by oh, what was her name? She does every music video where someone starts messing with the frame rate that's her thing <laughs> um I, I completely forget her name um but she she did a film about the runaways and i think that there are some films where you can sort of tell the story by the casting and it's like in the runaways oh christian Stewart Flo- played what, floria oh, floria sigismondi that's yeah. it he was quicker than the pop-up going away. Well done, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's done tons of music videos, but not that many films. And The Runaways had Kristen Stewart as Joan Jett, uh, Michael Shannon as their manager, Kim Fowley, and Dakota Fanning as Cherry Curry. And you think, all right, I can sort of figure out the film's take on these people from that casting, right? Yeah. It's just the hot young things of the time. That's who the cast that uh, in 2010, I think that is. I think there's, there's no a kind of. There. There's yeah. no challenge. It's not quite as bad as, um, what was it called? Where the, the straight washed. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody, where the straight washed Freddie Mercury, where there's no reference oh, to right. acknowledgement yeah. of being gay whatsoever. It's not quite as weird a take of history as that, but still, it's <laughs> a bit safe. Maybe a bit, yeah. I mean, there was a bit of attention at the time given to the fact that that was one of Dakota Fanning's first post-child star roles. And because Cherry Curry's stage wear was like lingerie and stuff like that, there were a lot of people who were a bit squeamish about that. But that's that's pretty accurate because Cherry Curry was 15 when she joined the Runaways and it was... Not, uh, and it, you know, there were eyebrows raised over it even back in the 70s. And the 70s had no standards for anything whatsoever. The 70s, the decade where, correct me if I'm wrong, everyone was a paedophile. That was the, the tenor yeah. of the 70s. That, yeah. that was the 70s gimmick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was just a time when people decided to sit down and think, yeah, that's our thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, wow, we, we should reverse up out of this conversational cul-de-sac as fast as possible. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, the, the runaways are... I mean, I, I didn't realise that what made them was the success in Japan, and that's such a weird thing throughout history of how good they are adopting these outsider bands and really Completely. championing them. Because they were, even as teenagers, they had great stage presence. John yeah. Jett's gone on to de- um, influence so many people. It's she's got they're, that level never... of, of rock star where people mm. are influenced that even though they don't realise it, they're influenced by the people she's influenced by, and very few people re- achieve that. Honestly, yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, there are people in who were in that band, like Joan Jett, like Cherry Curry, like uh, Lita Ford, whose subsequent careers have, I think, vindicated that band and made all of the naysayers look really silly and sexist. 
probably cost the wear, weren't they? <laughs> because they were, yeah. That was one of the 70s <laughs> other things, wasn't it? Yeah, it's sexist and racist. They were pretty good at that too. Yeah. <laughs> so Cherry Covey has... It's not her first role in this. She'd been in Foxes with Jodie Foster uh, before this. But um, it's one of her early roles, and it's a pretty big role for her. She's co-lead with Robert Carradine. It's can you call him a lead though? Because it's kind of very weird as far as character positions. Because mm. they start off and it's two people. He's a musician. Oh my god! How many times do they reference the fact that he's a musician? It's like every five <laughs> minutes. I'm a musician. I like write music. Where's my harmonica? Oh, behave. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad um, but then it goes to like this military base and it's with them for ages and as far as movies about aliens and military bases this is quite low key there's no like, harvesting of anything at all it's quite calm honestly yeah. it's at this very early stage in that kind of alien conspiracy mythos where you can see the shape of what you would get in stuff like The X-Files and Men in Black later, yeah. but a lot of it hasn't coalesced yet. There is an alien autopsy scene, and I cannot think of an earlier film or TV show that features an alien autopsy than this. You'd have to be a real expert and go right out into the raids to find something earlier than this. Yeah. To know your onions. But after about half an hour, 45 minutes, then, you know, she comes back and then she's sort of the core lead again. It's sort of past the parcel with the lead role, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I I must say I found my attention wandering a bit when it gets to the sort of military-heavy segments. I think Curry and Carradine, they're likably weird leads, aren't they? I I can't... This is this is a Roger Corman production, and I cannot oh, imagine. Oh yeah, it shows. It really shows. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot imagine any studio deciding that their two leads are going to be a, a failing singer-songwriter and a psychic. But there we go. That's <laughs> that's Corman for you. <laughs> yeah, because it's weird what they do with her character. I should think that's mm-hmm. who they, they sold this on. Because, what is this, 83 there, we're like the 70s. So yeah, I imagine there's still a lot of star appeal to her back then. Yeah, in that area. yeah. And she vanishes for great periods and she's like tied up in this psychic contraption. Having weird yes. conversations with alien children. Yes. That's the that that's what she's detecting, isn't it? She keeps having these psychic flashes and strange messages, which are, I guess, incarnated by the Tangerine Dream score, which sounds like what would happen if Whale Song was written by Wendy Carlos. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that means something, Graham. <laughs> but, <laughs> Uh, right, okay. Wendy Carlos did the music for a Clockwork Orange. Whale ah, song yes. is a song oh, by God. whales. Oh, I knew the last bit, but thank you for explaining <laughs> it anyway. <laughs> yes. A- alien kids is what she's picking up. Yes. 
she doesn't. I mean, the only thing she says for about forty minutes is they want fresh air, and then she goes mm. back to being sort of aloof and weird and tied up. Yeah, the military yes. men do their they do their thing. There's there's a line of dialogue that I noted down uh, for from the military psychiatrist uh, where they say about Iris. Curry's character. Uh, she's nearly always in a meditative state. Her brain has no background noise. Yeah. And I just thought, well, she's no Jane Fonda, but she's not that bad. Um... <laughs> yeah, that's a weird comment, isn't it? Is what does just... it even mean? <laughs> Is he observing everybody's brain, brain behaviour? <laughs> I mean, if you catch me in a day where I'm just sort of staring out into the space when I'm on a bus, I'll be like that too. Does that mean I've got a special yes. brain? Oh God, yeah! I've had jobs where I was ne- all, nearly always in a meditative state, and my brain had no background noise. But I didn't get the military crashing in to sort it out. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, yeah. I suppose I wouldn't have noticed, would I? How much background noise does a brain have? <laughs> How is it measured? It's it's such an odd thing. It's. It feels like world building, but they've not actually put any thought into it whatsoever. Because if somebody asks one question, it all comes crashing down. It feels Instantly. like if they made this just as little as ten years later, that psychiatrist would be saying, "Stop me if you've heard this one before." But have you heard that we only use ten percent of our brains? Oh no, I've heard that so much. <laughs> <laughs> And he'd be played by, oh, what was he called? Uh, his name always goes, Loomis, Halloween. Oh, Donald Pleasance. Called? Yeah, why does his name always go? It's weird, that. Great Donald Pleasance. This, this does feel like the sort of film which would have Donald Pleasance in, really. Because his career was all over the place. So I think Pleasance is, his niche sort of becomes, over the time, it becomes... You've got a piece of exposition in a science fiction or horror film, and it is total bollocks. Who do you cast to make it sound like it means something? Yes, yes, it it is the sort of thing he'd be in entirely. Because I, it's as a common thing, they're the two stars, aren't they? Carradine and uh, Curry. But beyond that, yeah, it's it's character players. You know, Keenan wins in it. There's a few. A lot of those kind of, oh, that guy kind of actors. Yeah. I mean, I don't know him by face, but when they turn up, yeah, it's just you recognise the face. That's it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a weird movie. Um, it's a strange one, isn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, to go back to the E.T. comparison, this does have this really hard, paranoid surface about secret government experiments and all kinds of, you know, <laughs> paranormal things going on in the background and then the aliens when they emerge they are a bit ET-ish aren't they well they're very low budget it's just kids of colour with the hair shaved off <laughs> yes it is yes I feel like there is there is a thesis in that isn't there why are all of the kids in this movie black yeah it, it, you don't have to dig much it, like beneath the surface to realise there's yeah, it's quite on the nose, isn't it? There there's a metaphor going on, yes, yeah. It's not a smart one, but they're trying, <laughs> no. 
No, no. <laughs> but they are kind of very ACs aliens, I want to say. They can heal you with their touch, which is the sort of thing mm. that ACs aliens can always do. Reminded me of a Brother from Another Planet in that regard. That's oh, a, yeah. a, a plot beat of that one. can't remember who did that, but that's a good movie too. It's John Sales, isn't it? That's it, yeah. Yeah. Because he was a... All over the shop, genre-wise, that guy. I mean, he's definitely associated with social realism more than anything else, but that just makes Brother from Another Planet even weirder. Yeah, it does. But it's these um, these black kids with the hair cut off and no claws want to go and see a church, and then they have really hot skin that kills somebody. And then their ship kills people because they're removing ex no, removing things from the environment to regenerate and eat. Mm. It's it's got mythology to it, all right. Weird. It's maybe not slightly too much, hasn't it? It's one of those. You feel bad saying this, but the films aliens are slightly too original to bring them in in Act Three and have them fit together yeah yeah it's just i don't get them yeah i don't think this story does either because i don't really know what the point is they're definitely i mean for all we said that the the racial metaphor is definitely in there pretty clearly it feels like the movie does not quite know what to say about them in the in the way that you could never say that about a fifties science fiction movie. But... <laughs> no, definitely yeah. not. Where in this, it's it could I don't know. I mean, it couldn't even sort of wing my way through it. It's so vague. I did kind of like that. I do think that. If you're going to make a film about really weird, vaporous things like conspiracies and aliens, it should feel weird as shit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that the 80s were missing out on so much. Mm. Ambiguity was not a big thing in the 80s, I think. No, I mean, I think the 80s is the, is the decade that America made. America... Going to alienate American listeners here, but America is a bit <laughs> shouting the loudest over everybody else mm. and saying they're better than everybody else, and it kind of uh, translates into a lot of their presentation. Well, it's true, isn't it? Because when you take away American pop culture from like our image of the eighties, you suddenly realise how absolutely different the decades would look if you weren't taking it into consideration. Like, without American stuff, what would I associate the 80s with? I don't know, Echo and the Bunny Men, probably, which is a bit of a different matter. Like, hugely camp. (laughs) A little bit politics, maybe? A little little edge and terrible haircuts. Yeah, the the haircuts are bad, whatever country you're in. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to be in Hong Kong or Korea in the 90s, they're also the 80s. So yes. I think that's just playing that. Because 90s movies and 80s movies of Hong Kong are so 80s. Are so very, very 80s. It's so weird. 
do you think there's like a rolling 80s revival and it's just like how night travels around the world that as soon as it stops being the 80s in one country it just moves on to the next country do you think it's like that figure of speech where one person who has like a real big problem of alcohol says oh well it's five o'clock somewhere yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. it. It's 1986 somewhere. Oh, I hardly sit down. This 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 feels sort of like 1978. This feels sort of studios don't quite know what to do, so they're just mm. throwing things around, and you get these weird little things pop out of nowhere, which are more tonal and experimental and weirdy and dreamy. Whereas yeah, in the 80s, definitely. everyone's like, it just blood everywhere, everything explodes and loads of pop songs. Gordon, yeah, yes. that's the 80s. <laughs> but no, this, this is not like that at all. I will say one thing for the 80s, because I, I do use it as a punch bag and I do hate 80s nostalgia, but I can appreciate that there are some things about that kind of American 80s pop culture that are really admirable. And I think the scenes in this where Cherry Curry and Robert Carradine are breaking and entering into the military base are so 80s and they have that authentic 80s sense of getting into mischief, getting into real trouble. I mean, I'll I'll stand up for the 80s in one regard where I think they're movies that America made for kids, for teenagers, Mm -hmm. have never been as good as they were since then. Yeah. Like the eighties was like prime, prime or um, teen movie, sort of uh, real estate. Since then, they've gave up, and that's mm. why when you look at like the the big eighties nostalgia pieces now, it tends to be stuff like Stranger Things and Paper Girls, which are tapping into exactly that kind of. You know, remember when screen kids could misbehave? Remember when that was permitted? Yeah. But yeah, they they do break and enter into a military base, which, Rob, is where the backstory comes in. Also, I've got to say, I love the base, um, because comparatively speaking, um, it's a sci-fi movie now. And sci-fi movies now, when they do military bases, they basically rent out a hotel and say, that's not a military base. Hang a wall (laughs) shut up. Now that's a military base. <laughs> but in the eighties, they actually got proper proper places, and uh, it has the sort of soulless facade that the same a military base has. Rob, you do not know how right you are. <laughs> well, it probably is. Who's <laughs> sci-fi? Anyway. It is the military base that they that is in the film is a military base called Lookout Mountain which was founded in 1947 by get this the 1352nd motion picture squadron i think i've heard how, how, i think i watched a smithsonian i listened to a smithsonian podcast about something like this yeah it sounds familiar I, my first question is how many filmmaking divisions does the US military have that they're numbering them like this? <laughs> yeah, I've got access to that. That's wild. Well, Lookout Mountain was decommissioned in 1969. While it was active, 
it produced mostly, uh, obviously, propaganda films, as you would expect. It documented a lot of the early atom bomb tests. Whenever you see that often used piece of stock footage that's in basically every post-apocalyptic movie where an atomic blast blows over a load of trees, that's a Lookout Mountain production. There are also odder things about it. I assume so. It's a propaganda wing for the US military. I imagine it's plenty, plenty, plenty hot. <laughs> See, around the time that Lookout Mountain was at its peak, no pun intended, uh, was also the time when MKUltra was running, which was the American government's since declassified real-life program to see if mind control was possible. <laughs> well, that's... Yes. Just um, when you think America can't get more America, it just goes and does something else. <laughs> <laughs> I, MKUltra sounds like the maddest conspiracy ever, but it is real. There's still lawsuits flying, particularly over the death of uh, Fred Olson, an MKUltra scientist, who was said to have killed himself, but his family have maintained that he was dosed with LSD and pushed out of a window. Um, it's it's dark stuff. And there is a particular conspiracy theory about Lookout Mountain because Lookout Mountain is part of a district of LA called Laurel Canyon. Hmm. Are you familiar yes. with Laurel Canyon? Um, I mean, maybe. You hear a lot of stuff and all of it's in there somewhere, so maybe it's in there. I don't know. Maybe it's in there, or maybe you have had your brain wiped by the US government, which, as we've established, is possible. Maybe when I was staring out the bus window one day, I was, t- <laughs> was too much you know, ambience in my brain, so, you know, the white moon. There is a particular conspiracy theory about Lookout Mountain, which I just love, and which does actually tie back into wavelength, that... Laurel Canyon was the centre for a lot of American rock stars of the late 60s. Jim Morrison lived out there, David Crosby, Joni Mitchell, most of the birds lived out there. And there is a particular theory that the late 60s hippie rock scene was part of MKUltra, and it was designed to channel America's youth away from rebellion and more into listening to, like, 10-minute guitar solos. Uh, there's some gymnastics there, isn't there? It's a conspiracy theory that rests largely on the fact that two things were in the same place at the same time. As all the best conspiracy theories are, I suppose. <laughs> But I love this. I have a big soft spot for like end of the 60s para- and paranoia. Um, and also, I mean, the, the one thread that I think is sort of interesting in this is quite a lot of late 60s rock stars for such a countercultural anti-establishment scene, a lot of them were from military families. You know, Jim Morrison was, Frank Zappa was. Well, I, I guess they're rebelling. That's, that, yeah, I mean, that's probably it. And a while back, Aidan and I did, on this very podcast, we did The Doors by Oliver Stone. And that is 
one of the few conspiracy theories that Oliver Stone hasn't signed up to is the <laughs> Laurel Canyon stuff. Like he does acknowledge that Jim Morrison had a dad who was in, I think, a, I think he was a naval officer. But it is portrayed as just, oh, the old man's so starchy. I've got to find my own path. Uh, there's no wow. suspicion that Jim Morrison might be part of a, a plot to make America's young people more apathetic and boring. Well, it certainly worked for a bit. But, uh, yeah, they hit hard <laughs> out of the 60s, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> but I liked Wavelength. I don't think it's one of those weird things. I don't think it's good, but I like it. I think, yeah, I think that there are parts of it that are really endearing, and there are parts of it where you want to cut it a bit of slack because, once again, we were watching a VHS rip on YouTube, and yeah, uh, Alexander Nevsky would look a bit crap if you were watching it under those conditions. Yeah, yeah, it would. Um, I mean, even then, the budget, it's. The fact that they've got access to Lookout Mountain gives it so much more production value because outside of that, we're talking about a hillside with a hobo also apparently made Lookout Mountain. It's a thing. <laughs> and then they're just out driving in the wilderness in the in the Badlands. Is that the Badlands? Desert Badlands, whatever you want to call it. There's no production value other than that. I mean, it's basically here is a movie we made it in a field. Also, yes. oh look, we've got that bit over there with Lookout Mountain. That's cool. <laughs> that was always Coleman's genius, though, wasn't he? He was a master of spotting locations that would make his film look more expensive than it yeah. was. Yeah, I mean, what is it? Um, was it Tomb of Lygia? He shot it in like an ancient British abbey, and it just makes it look so good. It's just the one I always shots. Yeah. The one I always think of is Targets, where they'd made a horror film at some location with Boris Karloff, and they'd finished like two days before schedule. So it's just like, oh, we've still got Karloff, and we've still got this location for a couple of days. Hey, Peter Bogdanovich, have you got a script that could fit that? <laughs> is that quick, really? Wow. It was just insane. And it's a great film, Targets, I think. And Peter Bogdanovich was a prodigious talent, so... Yeah. Why yeah. Not? Oh, yeah. He was on fire at that point. Um, but yeah, it's it it. There's a certain kind of genius to it, and I think that's on display here. But it, it gives it. Um, I don't know. It just it's a very very small film, but that sort of expansive um, location because we're talking about it's, it's just loads of corridors, but it feels real. Yeah. It feels like a real military base, and there's so few films where you can say it feels like a, a real military base. And yeah. honestly, this is one of a very, very, very small amount I've ever seen. Yeah, really. I would say so. Yeah. Any of them? Yeah. Independence Day. I don't know what they use as a military base there. It's just a warehouse. Because apparently that's what military bases yeah. are just warehouses. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I was driving past a storage facility just after I, I watched this, and I did have a moment of thinking, I wonder if they've all got crashed UFOs in. They've got <laughs> to, right? They've got to keep them somewhere. Yeah. I mean, uh, bending the walls of the podcast a little bit, but um, Donald Trump basically all but admitted they exist. So, yeah. Yeah, and, somewhere. you know, who could distrust something that Donald Trump says. 
I know, but he's the most trustworthy person in the world. Scout's on her. <laughs> Again, I'm probably uh, going to annoy people by saying that, and I'm really sorry. <laughs> I think we can live without those listeners, Rob. They're all probably watching Newsmax about how Joe Biden used alien space lasers to steal the election. They don't care about us. They're not listening. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair and valid. Okay. There's uh, some other interesting credits for Cherry Curry, but there's also some interesting credits for films that she wasn't in. Uh, She she is one of those rock stars, and it does always seem to be rock stars who has a rich iconography of uh, films that they didn't quite make it into. Uh, She was nearly in Explorers by Joe Dante. Wow, really? That would have been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she was replaced by Linda Blair in Savage Streets. That's not a movie with great reputation, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, it's a real revenge one, that one I... isn't it? Um, if I, remember I think it is, yeah. It's said to be very nasty. Uh, probably better if she never got that then. Yeah, Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, she'd... Um... Yeah, the, the, having to cope with Kim Fowley is sordid enough for one life. Yeah, <laughs> true. The one that I love, um, there was a whole subplot in the original cut of This Is Spinal Tap about a character played by Cherry Curry. Oh, that'd have, been, that'd have been good. That'd I mean, I, good. I don't think it needs anything else. Like, you know, tap, spinal Tap's it, one of the all-time great comedies, but it would have been nice to have it, a genuine rock star and it's, it's hard like that, yeah. And not least because it, we could do it on this show if it did. Technicalities, Graham. <laughs> Smudge the but technicalities, is, you can do everything. <laughs> there is a very tiny piece of evidence of the Cherry Curry uh, plot in the the finished film, because she was going to play the lead singer of an 80s synth-pop band called The Doors, who were invited to support Spinal Tap. And the joke was was that she gave almost all of the band STDs. And there are some scenes early on in Spinal Tap where David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell have little scabs on their lips, which are totally unexplained in the final cut of the film. But that is the last piece of evidence of the Cherry Curry scenes. That's a fun bit of trivia. Yes. Yes, it is. I feel like I have failed to persuade you that Lookout Mountain is a a place of great evil. Um... (laughs) It's funnier than it is evil, let's be honest. Yes. But consider this. If, If Lookout Mountain does not have some kind of dark juju, if Lookout Mountain is not part of a government plot to make all our young people idiots... How can you explain the fact that it is now owned by Jared Leto? <laughs> it all makes perfect sense. <laughs> Stupidest man in America is owning that building. There we go. <laughs> Sorry, Jared Leto and 30 Seconds to the Mars fans. Please don't do any episodes about him. Oh, no. Please don't, Graham. 
there is a 30 Seconds to Mars documentary, which I, I only know about because the great Nathan Rabin reviewed it for The Dissolve when that wonderful site was up and running. And he sounded like he was about to break his computer in half. He was so <laughs> angry with that movie. <sighs> Not a fan of quality method acting, Rob. That's what you want to call it, Shewer. <laughs> <laughs> but yes I think that about wraps it up for uh, another week so Rob just remind everyone where people can find you online well you can find my podcast directors uncut wherever podcasts find you it's just coming off its uh, season break sabbatical um, but to keep up with what I do, you can find me uh, on Instagram and Twitter at UncutRobCast, that's R-O-B-Cast, and you'll get everything there on my stuff. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Graham W Films, and you can find me on Letterboxd just by searching for Graham Williamson. But until next week, what, is it next week? No, we're taking a break next week, aren't we? Uh, there'll be the Michael Moore episode of Directors Uncut out then, and then there'll be some new pop screen the week after that because we're going fortnightly to give people a bit more of a chance to catch up with these shows. So in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be back. And until then, I've been Graham. And I have been Rob. And we'll see you in two weeks' time. Mm-hmm.